Hey, McGuardians, I'm Clay. And I'm Joe. Welcome to that Midgard show. This is a podcast where we discuss the Midgard campaign setting published by our friends at Cobalt Press. Yep, and in this episode, we're going to continue our series on the locations and lore found in the holy robes of Sister Adeline Adventure and Empire of the Ghouls. So if you've missed episodes 13 through 16, check them out on your favorite podcasting platform or on YouTube. Uh, and because there is so much to this campaign, our discussion of each chapter is going to take place over many episodes in our Empire of Ghouls series. So we'll do our best to avoid spoilers by focusing on the lore, the locations, and all the notable NPCs. But if we feel like we're going to tread into that spoiler land, we'll let you guys know. We also ask that if you enjoy what we're doing on that Midgard show, please give our episode a thumbs up and subscribe to the channel on YouTube and rate and review us on your favorite podcasting platform. Doing so really helps others to find the show. Also, you can comment below or in our dedicated channels on the Midgard Adventures Discord server, particularly if you're going to run Empire of the Ghouls. Uh, we do read all the comments and respond to many of them. In fact, uh, it was a listener who suggested that we do a series on Empire of the Ghouls. Yeah, sharing information and giving GMs and players advice is what the Midgard Adventures server is about. It's what this show is about. Lastly, we're really trying to return to our regular weekly schedule. Summer vacations and the real job have been a challenge for both Joe and I, and yes. it has been making it hard for us to get together to record. Please be patient with us. Hopefully fall, things will kind of chill a little bit, and we're able to get back to our regular recording schedule, our production schedule, and our release schedule. That's enough housekeeping for now, and let's get on with the show. Joe, you went to Gen Con this year. I'm so jealous, yeah. and you also spent some time with the Cobalts. How was it? It was it was awesome. I mean, Gen Con's always fun. Uh, this is my third year in a row going. I think I I'm not one of those old school Gen Con guys. I really didn't get to start doing this till fairly recently. But this is one of the reasons we haven't recorded in a while. Is I went to Gen Con, then I got back from Gen Con, and I got sick from Gen Con, which is a thing that happens when you go to Gen Con. But it was awesome. I could we could spend an episode just talking about Gen Con. Honestly, the Kobolds were great. Uh, they were really focused on Tales of the Valiant and Project Black Flag and all that. So I went to a talk on Project Black Flag, which was really, really cool. Uh, one of the questions I got asked there was, is Midgard the official setting for Tales of the Valiant? Which the answer to that was yes and no, because it is much more almost kind of like uh, uh, Planescape or something like that, where it's meant to be a place where you can get to any realm from. So you can play Tales of the Valiant in Midgard if that's where you want, or in Forgotten Realms if that's where you want, or in Dragonlance or wherever you, you prefer it is a place of many realms. So Midgard, I'm sure, is going to continue to be supported moving forward. Uh, I hope so. <laughs> I also, yeah, well, yeah, I mean, it, 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 it is, right? They're going to keep on publishing Midgard content because it can be played in Tales of the Valiant, uh, and it can be played in 5th edition if that's what you prefer to keep playing it. And you know, you really notice, too, most of their setting material, a lot of their setting material is fairly system agnostic, like the world book. And yeah. even books like uh, Tales of the Old Margrave, Yes, it's got 5e specific content in there, but it also the lore content is not specific. It's it's lore. And I still use a lot of the Pathfinder lore for our fifth edition stuff and our Tales of the Valiant stuff. So it was a really good talk, though, and I got to learn a little bit more about uh, how Tales of the Valiant Black Flag is going to go moving forward. I also got to play in a couple of Tales of the Valiant games. So I got to play Beast of Dib, which is in the prepared, the new prepared book that just came out. It was one of the new adventures. So we got to play that as a Tales of the Valiant adventure, which was really cool. And then uh, I got to also play um, with Eric Frankhouse, who does all of the uh, YouTube and Twitch stuff for Cobalt Press these days. He kind of took over for Dot. So there was an adventure, which is the name of which is slipping my mind again right now. But it was uh, it was a really cool adventure. It was called Sea of Bones. That was it. Sea of Bones. And that was a pretty intense adventure. I believe is going to be part of a larger adventure that's going to release with Tales of the Valiant. But I really got to see it, Tales of the Valiant in action and see how it felt compared to 5th edition, which was super cool. It was very easy to get into. I would say the biggest difference was the, the new luck system, which uh, went over very, very well at the table. Uh, and then, you know, the Kobolds also have a adventure you can download right now that is uh, like a first level adventure called Caverns of the Spore Lord, which they specifically asked me to download and run and do a video on on my YouTube channel, which I plan on doing. 
but it was great adventure. I ran it with a bunch of people who've never played Tales of the Valiant, all fifth edition players, and they had a blast doing it. I had them all create TOV characters and run it, and it was super, super cool. So overall, Gen Con and TOV and the Kobolds, it was a fantastic experience. I got a bunch of cool stuff from them. I even got a, uh, they gave me a uh, printed version of the Tales of the Valiant Alpha uh, for my table. So I got that nice. uh, in my pocket now. Yeah, that was really cool. They were all, all the, the GMs or a lot of the GMs uh, had them. And at the end of the, at the end, I uh, went down by the booth and Kim, who is their customer service person. Uh, she, I work with her a lot. Uh, she's super, super nice. She's like, Hey, hold on. I have something for you. And she handed me that book. So I felt really fortunate to, to get one of those copies of the alpha, but yeah, man, Gen Con in general was a blast. I mean, so much cool stuff. I picked up so many new products and just different things and got to see all my friends and people. And, you know, I got to talk with Wolfgang a bit and Alexander, uh, you know, Eric and Dot and just everybody. Uh, Celeste uh, was there. So I got to finally meet Celeste and talk with her. So much cool stuff at Gen Con. I really, you got to come. You really need to come. Yeah, I, I just couldn't work it out this year. I, I've I've been going, you know, fairly regularly every year for, since about oh twenty fourteen, twenty fifteen yeah. actually. Um, I I did uh, I did do some jamming uh, for the Cobalts, uh, you know, as yep. well. Um, I I ran a lot of the uh, adventures that are found in. Oh, the publication is is escaping me, but uh, oh, one of the one one of them I ran was to wake war, which takes yeah, place was, in uh, the wasted west, and I ran that yeah. a lot. I have a blast at Gen Con. Midgard Sagas. Midgard Sagas. Thank you so much. Yeah. I enjoy going because of COVID. So many people have moved online. Um, yeah, it, it's these these conventions. You know, even the smaller regional ones are just a great place to uh, hook up with people that that uh, you only see in two dimension. Um, and, and that you yeah. get to get to see in 3D and play in person and, and things like that. Last year when I yeah. went, a, a fan of Midgard had three days of sessions running uh, adventures from uh, Tales of the Old Margrave, you know, from the start to the finish. We just had a blast because we were playing with the same people. Uh, we got to know them. We were all strangers. And uh, by the end of the uh, Gen Con, we're like, you know, exchanging Twitter handles and stuff like that. Yeah. So it's like, you know, let's play online. It never did work out. But the GM was a lot of fun and, and players from all over the country. You know, that was a lot of fun. You know, the downside of that, of course, is, you know, you're, you're just playing with the same group of people uh, through the whole weekend. But the great side of that is you're playing with the same people the whole weekend. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, be, and you get to know them and, and you get really get to know their characters and it just kind of becomes a mini campaign. So. So, yeah, I'm yeah. sorry I missed it this year. I'm going to shoot for uh, next year. And yeah. uh, and uh, def definitely try to uh, make it work next year. And you know what? I ran into uh, – I think there was at least two people who came up to me uh, that are fans of, the, of our show here, uh, of, awesome. of that Midgard show. Uh, so thank you guys for coming by. I wish I could remember names off the top of my head, but I, I really appreciate you guys stopping by, saying hi. Uh, I know one of you uh, came by. I was at the AAW booth most of Gen Con. Uh, you stopped by the booth to say hi, and we talked a bit, and I believe you mentioned wanting to see us maybe venture into the old Margrave in future episodes, so I think we were going to try and do that for you. Uh, yeah. But it means a lot. It, it really did mean a lot. Like when, when people came up, people who knew me from my YouTube channel, people who knew us from the podcast came up, that was probably my favorite part of the whole weekend, honestly. I, call, like, I called my wife. I'm like, dude, you know, people who came up that were like fans of the show, like that something that doesn't really happen like you know i don't feel like i'm like a big youtuber a big podcaster so you know when i see guys like ted from nerdarchy or, or you know those guys uh or nerd immersion um you know uh they get a lot of fans and stuff like that uh i don't so it meant a lot to me for you guys to come up and say hi yeah this show is for you guys not for us yeah. uh you know we we love midgard and we love talking about midgard uh definitely use the show notes uh in the comments uh, below to suggest Hey, I really want to know about uh, this area, or I want to, you know, do you have any more information on this piece of lore, or, or you have something to share? You know, you've ran yeah. uh, an adventure and uh, you had to fill in the blank. Talk about it. You know, we'll talk about it uh, for you. Maybe we'll invite you on on the show to to talk about it as well. Um, so, you know, eventually, the show's not just going to be Joe and I bantering bantering about. You know, we're going to definitely do uh, interviews with some kobolds, interviews with other fans of uh, Midgard, and uh, you know, it's really going to. You know, we want this to be a community thing. We're excited. 
We really appreciate, like I said, uh, everything guys do to support the show. But I think we have some more stuff to talk about with uh, Empire Ghouls. Yeah, yeah, for sure. There's this one antagonist in Empire of the Ghouls that kind of lurks in the background. And we've talked about uh, him in prior episode, and that's King Lucian. We've mentioned him that he's the source of the uh, invasion of Krakovar and things like that, but we didn't really provide his backstory. While largely in the background, Lucian is one of the key antagonists in the storyline. All power in the greater duchy comes from him. And those who hold lofty titles, they want to keep it. And so they will do whatever they need to do to please Lucian to remain in power. Because once you have a taste of power, it's tough to have it taken away from you. So I found pieces of Lucian's backstory in several resources. There's some good information in the Midgard World book, uh, the Empires of the uh, Ghouls book, and uh, older publications, you know, such as the Pathfinder uh, versions of the Midgard setting as well. Here's what I found out. Here's what I learned. And if you have any additional material, you know, please do talk about it in the comments and uh, we will definitely incorporate it into the show. But uh, Lucian is a very interesting character. You know, he's he's old. Um, and and according to the lore, it was about 310 years ago that the vampire Lucian arrived in Morgau and ingratiated himself with the then ruler of Morgau becoming his right-hand man. And there's some sources that say they were possibly lovers as well. Um, so once he was able to ingratiate himself with, with the ruler, he had the ability to kick his plan in motion. Uh, his plan was to seize the throne. Shortly thereafter, the priests of Lada, the golden goddess, uh, started to get sick and die. Uh, then the priests of the green gods fled into the forest where they were hunted down. And later, many of those court nobles uh, became nocturnal servants of the new prince. So his tactic was to turn them uh, into vampires and have them uh, under his thumb. And so within a year, Prince Lucian, you know, the title he gave himself, had utterly and completely taken control of the principalities. And anyone who questioned the old prince whereabouts found themselves exiled to the least desirable fiefdoms and given some of the most grueling or expensive tasks. Lucian is not from the, the area. He is Rebeshi, originally from the despotate of the Ruby Sea, found in the southeastern part of the continent that Morgau resides on. In the Midgard World Book, the Rubeshi are described as slavers and aggressive, malevolent folks, always seeking their own gain, and all other nations be damned. Uh, their hair is jet black, uh, just like their hearts, and Rubeshi eyes are green and pitless. However, in any drawing that I've seen of Lucian, his hair is depicted as light blonde to white which leads me to believe that he has been touched by the goddess Marina. Now, if you recall from past episodes, uh, the skin of anyone touched by Marina is marked purple with a stain, and their hair turns white. Now, I haven't found anything that described when and how Lucian became a vampire, so if you have some information, you know, please share it with, uh, with us in the comments, and we'll definitely talk about it. After his ascendance, he was nearly driven from the throne by the combined armies of Krakovar, Duresh, and the Madgard Kingdom. However, his undead strength and persistence gave Prince Lucian the edge uh, because he had the ability to return again and again and convert his enemies to his side. And when I say convert, I'm holding up air quotes because he turned them, you know, made them vampires or or possibly uh, some other type of undead with the insistence of other uh, more intelligent undead. And speaking of intelligent undead, he made a second alliance, and this one with the intelligent and organized ghouls. Uh, the next attempt to drive him from the throne was a complete rout, with Morgau's army killing and devouring the cream of the Krakovan and Madgard nobility on the field of Selesh. And within 50 years from then, uh, Luc Lucian conquered Duresh, uh, but the doors of the Iron Crags took Greisel before he could capture that as well. Now, the Vampire Lord's undead power and devotion to the Red Goddess make him and his noble court extremely dangerous. But as with most courts of, of this type, they fight amongst themselves more often than with their neighbors. And they have grown more numerous. And because of that, 
it becomes harder for them to feed uh, themselves and their ghoul allies. Now, we've talked about uh, the invasion of Krakovar, and and that um, occupation still remains very precarious conquest, uh, but a very rich one. However, they are surrounded by enemies. Baba Yaga is one of them. The Amazons of Purunalia and the kings of the neighboring kingdoms maintain a working alliance against the undead. Now, King Lucian and his undead hordes remain very dangerous, but somewhat are contained within the hills and forests of Morgau and Duresh and the new uh, rolling plains and hills of the province of Krakobar. But for the most part, the internal conflicts entail holding a village for a season, uh, despoiling a graveyard for new troops, laying waste to crops because uh, they don't eat anything but blood, or turning a tenacious enemy's daughter into a ghoul or vampire spawn. Lucian simply does not want to make friends with anyone, only to terrify their neighbors and dissuade them from denying his undead sovereignty. Equally important, uh, raids and warfare keep its neighbors from spreading the seeds of rebellion among the living who suffer beneath the undying gentry. Uh, the peasants of Morgau, restless and fearful, long to shake off their masters. They are organizing in, in a form of resistance. Despite the undeniable strength of Lucian's troops, the one war Lucian can never win is the one waged for the hearts and minds of their people. Because in my view, the, the, the living outnumber the undead. So this is ripe for all sorts of uh, storylines. But everyone outside the principalities believes that the undead aristocracy's demands for their subjects' warm blood and cold corpses go beyond any reasonable standards. But most living folk realize that lands controlled by Lucian are a place of suffering. They obey their masters and fight in their armies out of fear rather than patriotism. And since doing anything else invites reprisals against their families or forced enlistment in the bone company. So as a result, the army is led by its officers and its success come from undead troops and ghoulish Derekol mercenaries. They are both entirely evil and among the best troops the principalities can feel. So great victories in the field are secondary to Lucian's desires. They wisely join together to field the best troops whenever a real threat appears. Everything else, you know, such as the raids, the constant drumbeat of war, the intent there is to keep the border in flux and their neighbors off balance. So, gosh, what a cool area. There's a lot of uh, historical analogs uh, to, to this area. If you're World War II buff and, uh, and have studied that history, you know, there's a lot of uh, uh, parallels uh, to uh, what's been described in Morgau uh, with uh, real life history. Yeah, there's a, a lot to kind of unpack in everything you just went over. Uh, there's, you know, a lot of locations, a lot of places, a lot of people. There's a lot that happened. And one one good thing I recommend maybe while you guys are, are listening to us, and I know we, we kind of put some of this up uh, if you're watching this on YouTube, but pull up the, the Midgard uh, map uh, website and you can see a lot of these places. Like uh, Clay mentioned the field of, of Salish uh, where that battle took place. That's marked on the map. So it gives you some context to go with a lot of the stuff we're talking about. But yeah, I mean, you got this guy who kind of, he almost feels kind of Hitlerish, doesn't he? he? Kind of comes out of nowhere, uh, kind of gets himself in the government, and then slowly just works his way up until he takes over and then starts to expand. I mean, World War II is a perfect analogy for for what uh, what he did and how he how he went about doing it and expanding his power. Yeah. Again, if you need material, you know, you can rely on our history and uh, and, and turn it into kind of uh, high fantasy or grim fantasy uh, in, in in this case. Lucian is this background character. You know, he, he's, he's there to be the source of all of the problems that the PCs are having, uh, all of the problems that uh, are, are happening with the population in the principalities themselves. Um, also, you know, he's a thorn in the side of government surrounding them. So, God, there's, there's so many stories that you can just write just in this area. There's probably a lot of alliances that are going on just because of him, that alliances that probably wouldn't exist if it wasn't for the threat of, of Morgau. Yeah. Right. There's one enemy that I really want to do more research on, and is that that's uh, Baba Yaga. You know, we talked a little bit uh, in prior episodes of of the relationship between Baba Yaga and uh, and Lucian. So 
there, there's got to be more there. And I'm in search of any and all information as to yeah. uh, what's going on with that. So when we last left our heroes, they were in Jost, which is up uh, in the northern peninsula of the uh, Wolfmark. Just outside of Morgau territory, right? Yeah. And they're going to have to leave Joust. And they're going to have to travel several hundred miles through Vampire Control Krakowar to reach Jarosburg, which is the site of the battle uh, where our martyr basically died. And that, that's where, kind of where we're trying to, to find these robes and everything. That's where the players have to go. You know, that's where yeah. Sister Adeline's robes are, are said to be. Uh, these are magical robes that are rumored to have uh, great powers against the undead. So how do we get there? <laughs> that's the great, big, big question. So again, this is a good opportunity for you to pull up the map as I, I kind of talk to this, because uh, in, in spite of being in, in the group of vampires, there are innkeepers and merchants along the way that are still going to appreciate a, a living traveler's coin. They won't turn the characters away. However, there's always a chance that some of these, these innkeepers and merchants may report the characters to the Red Sisters or local guard if the characters are particularly rowdy or rude. So along this journey, they are going to be going through Krakowia. They're going to be going through a few different, one, one of several routes. And there's going to be small towns, villages, inns, maybe even just a small you know, roadside inn with no town that they can stop at uh, for the night. And how well behaved are they going to be? I mean, if, if your party is a party that's going to get into a bar fight every chance they get, that might not be good. But maybe there's an opportunity here to help the local innkeeper and, and make an ally out of them. So keep that in mind, too. So what are our routes, right? A possible route from Joust uh, to Eurosburg begins by traveling south. Uh, so you head south to Wallenberg, which is known as the City of Pines. And that's ruled by Count Wern. And this guy is this sadistic vampire lord who enjoys hunting peasants for sport in the nearby Tumerian forest. So I, I get very... Uh, 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 what's his name? Uh, Ramsey from <laughs> Game yeah. of Thrones vibes, but add vampire on top. Yeah. <laughs> um, from there, from uh, Wallensburg, they would then head east to a much larger uh, city called Varshava, which uh, once was a, a fame for its fine horses. Here is a huge blood cathedral to Marina, uh, which is under construction on the site of the World Tree Temple of Woten, which was actually raised to the ground by the Derakul when Krivokia fell. Fanatical priestesses of the Red Goddess are everywhere in Varsava. And those found guilty of even the most petty crimes end up with their blood soaking the stones that are being used to build the cathedral. From there, it's south on the road to Yorosburg. And the, so this route is pr approximately about 520 miles, 837 kilometers all the way. So it's a pretty good trip to get there. And you're going to pass through at least two major settlements and you'll actually probably end up passing a few battlegrounds along the way so there's a lot of opportunity for stuff to happen there alternatively second route the characters can choose is to travel southeast cross country from from joust until they reach uh one of the trading villages along the bank of a wide of the wide river yashtula near uh, heidenberg from here they can travel down river on a barge as far as vashava before making the last leg of the journey on foot to Eurosburg. That route is about 645 miles, uh, which is a little over a thousand kilometers due to the meandering route and the river flows through the country. So it is another another option that way. And we have talked about river journeys and stuff like that during our Zobek episodes and things that can happen on the rivers. So keep those in mind as well. Third option here is to head east from Joust by road through Heidenberg into the city of Krakovar. Once you leave Krakovar, there are no major centers of population all the way to Eurosburg, which is about 600 miles, again, about 965 kilometers. But you can put as many villages on that route as you'd like. So if you really want to stretch out uh, this leg of the adventure, you can easily get six to eight sessions of trekking across hostile territory. But uh, be careful. The PCs need to arrive in Eurosburg before the anniversary of Adeline's death to meet up uh, with the Spear Maidens who visit the ruins to pay homage to her. Since Krakovar is occupied territory ruled by vampire nobles and their red sister enforcers, I recommend that the tone of the travel should be very foreboding and kind of depressing. 
on the road, the most common sight is hungry crows pecking at the eyes of rotting corpses hanging on a, a rusty gibbet. The night air is filling with the howling of wolves, the soft tuning of owls, maybe the occasional human screaming in the distance in terror. You know, for those of you who don't know, uh, a gibbet. This, these are cool. Uh, I like I like this whole uh, look for this area. So, a gibbet is this kind of body shaped metal cage from which uh, the dead or dying bodies of criminals were uh, hanged on public display as a deterrent. The gibbet is usually used as a method of execution, with the criminal being left to die of exposure, thirst, or starvation. Essentially, it's just this like little cage that you can't move. You can't sit. You can't do anything. You just basically stand there and just are exposed and die of, of, of the elements of, of hunger, of thirst, and just rot away. So yeah. it is pretty horrifying. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, gosh. What a what a horrible way to go! What a horrible yeah. way to go! And and, so and perhaps crows along the route, and crows pecking out their eyes, and you know stuff like that. Maybe some of them are still living, and the crow, the birds are vultures are eating them. You know, yeah, yeah, that could be an encounter right there, where you free somebody who's still in fairly good health, and yeah, you know, or one of them in there is turned into a ghoul and that's starved for meat. You know, you guys, the PCs, lots lots of options there, but. It, it's a real life instrument of execution or punishment that was used centuries ago. Uh, you know. Wasn't that it? Willow? Isn't that how we meet? What's his name? Uh, uh, Val Kilmer's character in Willow. He was hanging one of those things. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, his his was a little bit bigger. I think he was a bigger cage. Gandalf was put in a hanging cage. You know, not a gibbet, but it was a hanging cage off of the tower. Not not a good place to be. Nope, not a good place at all. So. What else? What about the lay of the land? Again, the countryside is one of your characters. And the blood kingdom of Morgau is made up of the three former kingdoms. We've talked about this a lot. Uh, the Duchy of Morgau, the Barony of Duresh, and the newly conquered northern province of Krakowar. Um, the wide Yarshava River, it meanders down the middle of Krakowar from the Nieder Straits uh, in the north to Warsaw before it turns southwest uh, towards Dornig. So again, that's potentially one of the uh, routes that uh, your your party can go because it's you know easier to hitch a ride on a barge than you know trek over land. Um, south of Krakowar, Morgau and Duresh are located on a forested highland known as the Brom Plateau, which lies between the Iron Crags to the west and the Cloudwall Mountains to the east. Now, to the south stands the dense and ancient Margrave Forest, and the vast Rutherian Plain extends as far as the eye can see uh, to the east beyond the Cloudwalls. Now, there is a fast-flowing and icy river runnel that divides Dorish on the western side of the plateau from Morgau to the east, before heading north and east into Krakowar and meeting the sea at Lodzig. It's That river is too narrow, too swift for boat traffic, but it's a place to feed yourself. The, the lore says it's teeming with trout and perch and whatever else uh, you as a GM want to put in it. Now, the land of the principal paladies it is daytime there. It's not like uh, Barovia where it's always cloudy and dreary and, and creepy. Um, the, the principalities are very fertile. Although the fields are small, they yield abundant crops. Uh, the vineyards produce excellent wine and the woods are full of meat, you know, deer and boar, uh, providing uh, plentiful hunting. Uh, throughout Morgau and Duresh, the misty landscapes is dotted with small villages, crumbling ruins, and the keeps and manners of the vampiric nobility. Bordered to the west by the Temerian Forest, the province of Krakowar is less mountainous than uh, Morgau and Duresh, but its central and southern parts are still quite hilly and rugged. Now, the Yashchula River, it's the main river that uh, comes in from the Nieder Straits. It's super wide. Think of it as the Mississippi or the Rhine River or uh, any commercial river that uh, is found in, in Europe. That river connects uh, two other major cities, Gaibek and uh, Warsaw, that uh, we've talked about. And it meanders across the plains before emptying into the Nieder Straits near uh, the city of Heidelberg. Now, the northern coast can be wild and lots of stormy weathers, uh, but uh, Krakowa is still the most important trading hub on the straits. You know, the city, if you look at the map, there's Heidelberg and then there's uh, Krakowa. 
And uh, that city, Krakowa, is still one of the most important trading hubs on the Straits, even after falling under vampiric rule. Having lived in Europe for a few years, uh, this description of the greater Duchy of Morgau seems very much like Germany or Poland. Uh, but uh, make no mistake, you know, despite the beauty of the country, the Vampire Kingdom is a place of oppression. If you're not a vampire and a noble or a high ranking member of the government, you're simply food or toys for hunts and stuff like that. This is also an opportunity for social exploration and combat encounters on this journey. For one, Joe talked about it, you know, the party can hook up with members of the resistance who could be their guide or someone who mistrusts the parties and gives the party a hard time. I mean, like I mentioned earlier, right, about maybe there's an inn along the way where you make friends with the innkeeper, you do something for them, you help them. Uh, and then that leads you to getting an introduction to somebody from the resistance that can help along the way. I mean, there's a lot of opportunity here. You mentioned also this this being like kind of Germany or Poland. I also kind of get some Romania vibes, you know, very, very Transylvania-esque. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that it's dark and gloomy all the time, right? Like it, it, it's this, this is a place that people lived for a long time before the undead took over and the undead took it over for a reason for its resources. So it is still this, this great place, but it's just dangerous now. So seeing this country, you can, you can describe this beautiful countryside, these mountains, these lakes, these, you know, these rivers, this great scenery. And then around the corner, there's a pack of ghouls. So Mm -hmm. there's a lot of danger, but there's, you know, there's also that resistance there. There's people there that want to help. So yeah, I think it's I think it's a cool area. I also I think I, I mentioned before we started recording that I kind of even got like from World of Warcraft like Tristle Glade, you know, Western Eastern Plaguelands type vibes, but without yeah. the the plague part. You know, just that that type of architecture and and scenery of those locations. It's the kind of vibe I get in this area. We're going to go into a little detail on the three routes that uh, Joe outlined. So route number one. If the party chooses the head east from Jost to enter Krakovar, Heiderberg could be their first stop. The city contains a formidable castle at the mouth of the Yashtula River and is the main defense of the entire river city against the northern reavers. They constantly are making probing attacks uh, against the uh, area, and uh, they arrive in longships, sometimes larger ships. Uh, Both types of ships are capable of navigating 50 or more miles up the river if unopposed. Now, there's no map of the city, but you can use one of the older maps of Geneva, Switzerland, which looks very similar to the map of Jost, uh, incidentally. Or you can pick any other European river city if your characters plan on entering. Really, all you need is just kind of a general map of the streets, where, where an inn is, where a tavern is, place to buy supplies, a temple or two. Again, you know, we've talked about a lot of resources to kind of world build. And, and again, you know, you don't have to go into great detail because truthfully, your, your characters may just bypass that area. So don't waste a bunch of time. But if, if they do bypass that area, you can just use all that information and uh, plop it a, a, on another city. Before the invasion, Heidelberg was the Krakowian headquarters of the Order of the Storm. Today, Heidelberg is now the commandery for the Order of the Knights and Corporal under the authority of Commander Chalbanu. Uh, He was newly promoted by Grand Marshal Harista for his valor and his tactical intellect on the battlefield. Uh, Some of the more bloodthirsty knights of the Order of the Storm, you know, the living uh, members of the Order of the Storm, uh, they returned to the castle after swearing allegiance to Mavros and the blood priestess Sonia uh, of the Spear. She leads a fledgling order of the Bloody Blade, which also falls under Chabanu's command. Now, survivors who remained loyal to Perun fled northwest to join the Reaver Dwarves at Jaws. And the Ghost Knights are pretty cool, and I will talk about those a little bit more later in this episode. For sure, yeah. And uh, just I'm going to throw it out there because I'm the resource guy. For another option for a map is actually in Spectacular Settlements on page 179. They've got this cool map of a city at the mouth of a river with a castle. So that could be a really good option if you need something quick and and fantasy-oriented to use. But the next stop on this this particular route is going to be the city of Krakowa. 
so that's the you know principal capital of Krakova. And it's the largest trading hub on the Nieder Straits, even after uh, it fell into the vampire's hands. The city's docks are among the finest in the region with excellent shelter and docks for cargo. Krakowie actually drives trade to Bjornshafen, Kurlandia, Tanzerhal, and as far west as uh, Bemia. In the past, the city's size and power worked for it. Uh, attempts by dwarves or the guilds of Vadim to dominate shipping in the Straits were actually met with fierce reprisal and even open piracy. Princess Herestina is determined to keep trade flowing and has put General-at-Arms, who's now an admiral, Unger, the highest-ranking living officer in the Ghost Knights, in charge of the Navy. The province's merchant fleet must remain ever-vigilant against attacks from the Reverdors based at Skorgaholm and Joust. The city is built on dozens of harbor islands connected by bridges. The largest of them is the is Mermaid's Island, which is more than a mile long, where the first kings and queens of Krakowa were crowned and where the Slata used to meet to elect new kings. Mermaid's Island and its golden fields, where the nobility would gather during the envoy season, are now off-limits by order of the Protector. The assembly hall of the magnates has begun to fall into disrepair, but the council chamber is being used as a secret meeting place by supporters of Queen Ursula of Krakowa, who leads the resistance to vampire rule. Princess Herstina recently reinstated Krakowia's winter ball to be held at the Royal Brzezik Palace. Many of the nobles of the Slada are considering their invitation to the revel with a great deal of trepidation. So keep that all kind of in mind in this whole area, because, again, there's there's kind of a lot going on there. I almost see a, a, the Red Wedding from Game of Thrones. Yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking, too. Right. Like, yeah. do they really want to go to this thing? Yeah. <laughs> Red are, are, are they on the menu? <laughs> yeah. Like, come to our vampire ball. Humans. Yeah. <laughs> It'll oh, that's, be fine. That's crazy. I wouldn't want to go. No, <laughs> but not going could be just as bad. Right, right. So if your PCs decide to catch a barge south from Heidelberg, here is your kind of Heart of Darkness or Apocalypse Now type adventure. Not much is written about the river itself other than saying it's a wide river that large barges can easily navigate. So this is your opportunity to do some world building yourself. Most major trade rivers anywhere in the world have centers of population along its banks. If you're looking for a real-life uh, analog as the foundation for a river journey, I'd suggest the Rhine River in Germany, uh, the Vistula River in Poland, or even the Seine in France. Honestly, though, any commercial river in Europe that flows into the ocean can be used. For maps, try Google Maps for, uh, for a street view. Pick a village of a smallish city using only streets from the old part of town. Change the orientation and then draw your own high-level map to include major locations like town halls, inns, merchant areas, temples, all that kind of stuff. In Europe, the streets in the oldest parts of town and cities usually do not use a straight grid format. Uh, sometimes they're even like a kind of a wheel format. But there's other options too, right? There's, uh, again, you know, Spectacular Settlements or the City Builders campaign book from Global Press. We have fantasy map generators that you can use like... Uh, fantasytowngenerator.com. There's a few of them. We'll put some links for you guys uh, in the show notes where you can generate some random city maps. But it shouldn't be too hard to kind of come up with something for this place. Just remember to keep it simple. Use some roll tables or establish some major landmarks. Actually, you know, did an episode on my YouTube channel, GM Toolbox, where I use spectacular settlements to create a town, which used several random tables. And again, I mentioned the Cobalt Press now has its campaign builder, city and towns book both use tables to generate a city and it's actually a lot of fun to, to do. You actually kind of have a character sheet for your city. So it can be a, it can be a fun exercise for a GM to, to create this location. Just don't put a ton of time to train locations. Your players, again, they might bypass your town only to spend like a session in it. If at all, if they skip it, save it, use it for a location where they are headed. Um, you know, you can always reuse stuff you create as a GM for other places that your players actually do go. So we've got some good river-oriented adventures by Cobalt Press that you can adapt for travel down the river, perhaps convert some of the creatures to undead variants. A few, I won't go into too much detail, but a few are like, uh, there's the Riverfront uh, Rat Gang, which is in the Book of Layers. 
There is uh, the Sellers of Phineas Skyrib, which is uh, from the Cobalt Press blog. There is Demons of the River Argent, which is another encounter from Cobalt, the Cobalt Press blog. This one I kind of like because there are uh, more than just random encounters. Each conflict kind of flows organically into the next, and sometimes without even giving the PCs a chance to catch their collective breath. So each subsequent link in the chain uh, ups the stakes, giving the PCs the sense of falling out of the frying pan and into the fire, right? Yeah. This one has an encounter with the Death Butterfly Swarm, which I believe Clayton uh, talked about in a previous episode. So that's a, I like that one a lot, the Demons of the River Argent. There's also the River Tomb, which is in Tomo Beast 2, to greet the Rising Sun, which is another possible good one, because that one's actually in Underworld Layers, which is a book kind of related to Empire of the Ghouls to begin with. And that one's got like a, a clan of cave giants known as the Sun Seekers, which have been kind of traveling to the surface world, attacking villagers in direct sunlight, contrary to all the known facts about the creature's vulnerability to sun. So some magic is protecting them from the sun, and it's a source that has to be found and destroyed to prevent the spread of the underworld creatures to the surface. On top of that, you have Warlock Layers. There's like 70 issues of Warlock Layers. You can find a good one, adapt it easily, and plug it into your game. So lots and lots of opportunities for cool stuff on the river. And again, you know, if you don't want to spend a lot of time between Jost and uh, Jarlsberg, you can hand wave it. You can kind of uh, do a, a travel montage mm -hmm. uh, as, as a lore dump to your uh, PCs. But again, you know, if you want to stretch out the campaign, gosh, just this yeah. one chapter, you could spend six months in, you know, if you, if yeah, you really I mean, wanted to do that. I personally, when it comes to travel i don't i'm not a big fan of just random encounter of wolves or ghouls or mm -hmm. zombies you know like i would rather have implant a small adventure there's a another book i i sometimes use called mini dungeon tome which is just these little quick one page dungeons that you can just kind of pop in and it would take less than a session to run them that you can put along the way so if you're looking for certain things there there's a lot of content out there you can use to plug in to your travel and if you don't want to just montage it yeah so we, we've talked about two main routes. You know, one, the middle route is the river. Uh, the uh, eastern route is the roundabout way uh, through uh, the city of Krakowa. And then the, the last route, the more direct route, is dead south from the city of Jost. And on that route, Wallenberg is the next major city along that route. Now, this is a beautiful town known for its carved and colorful wooden toys, uh, the skill of its archers, and the dangers of its forest. Wallenberg is Krakowar's nearest city to the Temerian forest. The main products that uh, make up the economy in that area is timber and charcoal. That makes up much of their trade, uh, but it's also the seat of the former royal hunting lodge and a jumping-off point for expeditions to the ruins of Thorn. Now, Wallensburg Walls fell to a deadly assault by the Derekul during the undead invasion. Uh, these, these ghouls, uh, known as the Shroud Eaters, they just poured over the battlement in great number to slaughter the city's defenders. And these folks, the Shroud Eaters, always enjoy hunting with Count Warren. And he's the vampire lord of that area who now rules the city. And he makes very good use of the woodland to hunt human peasants and the fae alike. The creatures of the woods don't take too kindly to this. And the Count's men have been known to disappear. And the city is sometimes subject to fae revenges, leading to citywide distress when children vanish or swarms of mice uh, stripping the granaries bare. So... Imagine your PCs running into one of Count Warren's hunt during their travel south. Man, that would be yeah fun. That's brutal. Yeah, yeah. They could be part of the hunted. Uh, they could be uh, one of the folks that uh, rescues uh, a family of peasants who are being hunted by Count Warren. I mean, this is kind of like your predator trope, um, you know, all over the place. Yeah, uh, you know, again, I keep thinking of, of Ramsey Bolton, too, but as a vampire. like. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, here's the thing. Like, you talked about Derek Hull coming over the walls yeah. and stuff. And that's obviously well in the past. But it's such a, a, a graphic image to think of. Like, if you've ever seen the movie World War Z, which yeah. did not do the book justice, by the way. But the hordes of the undead literally piling up in the wall till they got over. 
Like, I would look for an opportunity here to somehow give the players a vision of the past, a flashback through some kind of magic so they could see what happened there. And describing that scene would just be epic, I think. If there was, you know, a way to a way you can work that into the game and let them see what happened there. Uh, it would also just kind of build up the hatred of, of Count Warren and the, and the Shroud Eaters. Yeah, and it could be uh, somebody that's uh, being hunted. Um, it could be a yeah. former soldier that uh, is in Count Warren's menagerie of of trophies that he wants to hunt and slaughter. I would want my party to take this route just for Count Warren. Like, I feel like he's such a great villain. Yeah, yeah. That's this is one location you can't move. You know, anywhere on the map. You know, because it's specific to the lore uh, of the area. Gosh, definitely a lot there that uh, a GM can play with. Yeah, for sure, for sure. So. Once they leave Wallenberg, they're going to have to head uh, east to Warsaw. So this is home to the horse breeders and famous for its races. It was the base of the kingdom's royal cavalry before the conquest. When the ghost knights approach the city after taking Yarosburg, Prince Hardred Walaska, the heir apparent and commander of the first Hussars, gravely underestimated the enemy he faced. Instead of waiting behind the city's robust defenses and forcing the undead to attack the walls, the arrogant prince rode out at the head of the Royal Cavalry Regiment, intending to attack at first light. Grand Marshal Herostina did not wait that long. The Ghost Knights and the warrior priest of Mavros smashed through the column of Hussars over and over again in the darkness, panicking the Krakovian horses and sending the army into disarray. Some made it back to the city, most including the helpless prince, were slaughtered. Varsava surrendered the next day. Following the city's capture, Varsava's celebrated World Tree Temple to Woten was razed to the ground by the Derakul. In the flames, many saw visions of Ragnarok. The smoke hung heavy over the city for a month, and the smoldering ashes are said to have been imbued with the great magical power stirring the ley lines and sparking magical gifts to some of those who breathe in its vapors. The priestesses of the Red Goddess have begun construction of a huge flood cathedral to Marina on the site, which will dwarf even the Temple of Aprostala. So again, this is quite possibly one of the uh, cities that the PCs may want to bypass. So, you know, don't spend a lot of time trying to pack the city with additional lore or, or locations. Just have something in your back pocket just in case your party surprises you. And they, they always will. But um, yeah. this is really kind of your, your final city uh, before we get to Yarosburg. And right. uh, we'll pick that up in our next episode. Uh, because we have some great creatures that uh, we want to talk about. Joe, what do you got? Well, vampires are everywhere in the greater duchy of Margal. Though they, they rule now, there was a time when they did not and battles were fought. One such battle was the one that took place in Jarlsberg, which you know we, we're going to talk about next episode. Um, but the one that happened there was where Sister Adeline and the clerics and paladins of Sif fought and died. And I have to think that during this battle, clerics and paladins would have called on sunlight to destroy some of their enemies. And when a vampire is destroyed in sunlight, it dies pretty horribly. But what happens if a vampire is feeding when it's destroyed in that way? When it's feeding upon a living creature, its blood-fattened body can explode into this fine crimson mist. The vampire's mind and personality are destroyed by the light of the sun, but its unholy lust for blood and hatred of the living persists in the form of a cloud of crimson mist. Wow. So this is actually a creature, uh, a crimson mist. It's, it's this creature of just animalistic instinct, right? It floats around only wanting to feed on the blood of the living, but it also feeds on their thoughts. And after years of feeding fragmented memories from hundreds of victims, and sometimes even memories from the vampire that spawned it, it congeals into a patchwork of consciousness. And the unending torment of fractured thoughts and incoherent schemes only drives this mist deeper into homicidal madness. Now imagine being in Yarosburg or in any other place for that matter, in Morgau, and one or even several of these mists approach the party. They overtake a party member, and it begins to have the, they begin to have their life sucked out of them. 
their weapons are only somewhat effective, and even some forms of magic don't seem to bother these creatures. Perhaps one of these mists even has a humanoid form, and it speaks. It's intelligent, apparent, even though it's still overcome with its hatred and bloodlust. So these creatures, like I said, they're 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 formed from a, a vampire that was destroyed, right? When as it was feeding, so it's essentially this kind of cloudish vapor with a mouth kind of <laughs> thing of blood. But there is also this option that they can gain intelligence over time and they can actually take more of a humanoid form. Uh, so it's just walking person humanoid of blood that would actually alter the stat block a little with a higher intelligence. But essentially, these things are, are these weightless mist clouds. They can pass through a space that uh, a mist could do so without squeezing. Whenever they deal necrotic damage to a living creature with its blood, the creature's max HP is reduced by the same amount that was done, and the mist regains HP equal to half that necrotic damage dealt. That reduction lasts until the creature finishes a long rest. So it's not doesn't have to get removed via some kind of uh, restoration spell or anything. But the creature will die if this effect reduces its HP to a maximum of zero. So keep that in mind as well. But since these were formerly vampires, they have some of the same weaknesses as vampires, like they can't enter a residence without invitation. Uh, they're harmed by running water. They're hypersensitive to sunlight, things like that. They really only have one attack ability, which is called engulf. And this is when the mist moves and basically occupies the same space as one of your party members. And to make a DC 15 deck saving throw. On a successful save, the creature can choose to be pushed five feet back or to the side of the mist. But a creature that chooses not to be pushed suffers the consequences of a failed saving throw. Which basically, when you fail, you take 46 necrotic damage and you're engulfed. Wow. And an engulfed creature cannot breathe. It's restrained. And it takes the 46 necrotic damage at the start of each of the mist's turns. When the mist moves... The engulfed creature does not move with it, and it's freed. But an engulfed creature can try to escape with a DC 14 strength check. And on success, the creature uh, enters a space of its choice within five feet. A creature within five feet can also use its action to try to pull their ally from there. But doing so also requires a DC 14 strength check. Uh, and the creature uh, that makes an attempt takes the 46 necrotic damage itself when they kind of put their arms in there. Wow. So uh, the mist can only do this to one creature at a time. Because they are still a size medium. I mentioned their their stats earlier. They're low strength, high dex, high con, but low intelligence. Only a 5 intelligence, 13 wisdom, 8 charisma. However, if they are uh, a mist that's reformed a personality from over time and, and whatnot, it can now speak. It has language. It has an intelligence of 17 and a wisdom of 15 and a charisma of 18. Uh, and it, it, it's wisdom and charisma saving throws are increased by, you know, to plus four and plus six. So having one that's kind of a leader almost controlling the other mist can be a very cool twist to this. Uh, but these things, they're resistant to acid, lightning, thunder, and, you know, normal physical attacks from non-magical weapons. They cannot take damage from cold, necrotic, or poison at all. And they have a slew of condition immunities that you would kind of associate with a mist. So they are... Pain in the butt, man. These are, they, they, by the way, these are found in Creature Codex, page sixty, uh, page sixty-seven. They are a CR six creature. You know, throwing one of these at the party would be, I think, pretty tough. Throwing like three of them, one of which is an intelligence one. Ooh, that would be hard. God. So I feel like these are great for any place where a, a battle took place. Yeah, yeah. It, it could also be uh, the PCs are sleeping and this, this red fog creeps across the ground and covers them up and starts to feed on them um, yeah. or emerges from a ruined castle or a battlefield. As you said, what a terrifying Such creature. A yeah. yeah. What a terrifying I, creature. Yeah, I, would, I would definitely drop, drop an encounter with these in Yarosburg. If like when the party gets there and they're exploring, this would be a great encounter. Yeah, you know, they, they, they remind me a lot of oozes. So you got the ooze uh, characteristics plus the vampiric uh, characteristics. Man, what a, what a great mashup. Yeah, I like it. I like it a lot. So what about you, man? What do you got for us today? Well, I talked earlier about uh, the Ghost Knights uh, who, who are yes. based in Heidelberg. And 
the the ghost knights of Mor- Morgau rise from interesting origins. You know, many of them were living creatures who chose to join the ranks of undead as a method of advancement. Now, the knights enter the order as living men and women bound to the service of a vampire, a derical necromancer or a priestess of Marina. If they provide good service for five to ten years, they might be raised up into the ranks of undead as foot soldiers in the Ghost Knights, roughly equivalent to a squire uh, elsewhere. If they make the transition through ghoul fever or vampiric bite without undue madness or blood frenzy, they may slowly advance through the ranks of the Order of the Red Shield. Now, there, there are three distinct levels. You know, there is the initiate brother or sister, the honest brother or sister, or master of arms, captain of arms, general of arms, commander, and grand marshal. Now, ghost knights receive excellent equipment, which typically include a gray or white warhorse, uh, two lances, a red banner, a mace or a longsword, and a tabard displaying the insignia of the order, which is a skull on a red background. The knights are expected to provide their own armor, leather or chain for an initiate, uh, and a full suit of plate or even better for a full knight or master. Now, Grand Marshal Princess Heristina oversees the order and was recently proclaimed Protector and Duchess of Krakowar, the Greater Duchy's third province, after she seized control of the capital city of Krakowa. Now, she has her minions. You know, minions may not be a, po- a good choice of word, but, you know, she has, has her lieutenants. Uh, one of them is Commander Belenius, who is her lover. And he oversees vital commanderies along the Great Northern Road where tolls are collected. These include the commanderies of Veluch, Bruvik, Engerstal, and the Cantry Abbey in the Cloudwall Mountains. New commanders are under construction everywhere in Krakowar. And you can potentially include a commandery that's under construction as an encounter in travel sessions. Now, there's another commander. His name is Orkov, who watches over the southwest borders near Zobak and the Iron Crags. She is responsible for the Temple of Aprastala, commanderies of Walker's Woods, and Longrone. The commander wages a never-ending war against the dwarves of Greisel and the other cantons, and her troops contain the much-feared dwarven company of prisoners taken from Greisel and turned into undead, which we talked about in earlier episodes. Now, the Ghost Knights can be found in Tome of Beast Ones, and they are depicted as the skeleton, uh, which is one aspect of undead that are part of this military unit. A Ghost Knight, in my opinion, can be any type of undead. Now, in the bestiary, this CR-7 critter is described as a skeleton whose armor creaks as its decaying undead horse gallops and emits a ghostly whinny. Uh, The ghost knight carries a long lance that has skulls attached to uh, the hilt and charges, you know. So, gosh, I'm getting flashbacks to that uh, series Sleepy Hollow with uh, one of these uh, creatures uh, coming at you. This creature has the usual features attached to a mounted and undead creature with some special buffs. For instance, the knight gets advantage on saves against the cleric's turn undead feature, and it cannot be knocked prone while mounted on its decomposing horse. Now, the most important buff is that all of its attacks include an additional 2d6 necrotic damage. On each turn, the ghost knight can do an average of 45 damage. And on top of that, its 17 AC makes them hard to hit. Now, the mount has the armor of 15 but does not have attacks in the stat block. Now, in medieval times, a wealthy knight rode on a highly trained horse. And the war horses of medieval times were a tool and a weapon that carried out many significant jobs for the knights. The horse had to carry a heavy knight uh, with their armor into battle and respond to leg pressure rather than the reins so the knight could use their hands for their weapons. Now, these types of war horses were trained to trample the bodies of fallen soldiers and bite and attack on command. And these maneuvers are called terre terre in dressage, which is a French phrase that roughly translates down to earth. So 
If I was to play this creature, I would definitely add an attack for the horse as another action for the knight or as a bonus action if I wanted to increase the CR of the knight. It could be a bite, a kick, or a trample. Not all at once, but one of each option. And the mount's attack could also be included as a reaction if you are able to dismount the knight. Add more than one knight, uh, which you should. You'll have a challenging and frightening encounter for your PCs. So this uh, creature is really straightforward. Um, it is in Toma Beast Ones in both versions. You know the uh, the original version and the uh, uh, version that just came out uh, this year. Man, these are like Death Knight light. Like yeah, you know, if you don't want to throw a Death Knight at your players, but you want that Undead Knight, this is them. But I'm like, I'm stuck on that 45 average damage. Yeah. So what you were doing that I, I pulled up my level six. Bear Totem Barbarian, who has 65 hit points. That means that in two rounds, possibly in one round, this guy's going to take my Barbarian down to zero. Yeah. If I'm not raging. Yeah. And you know, if I'm not raging. But that, like, a fighter or a ranger or, uh, God forbid, a wizard. Done. <laughs> Just one hit. Done. Right. Right. And that, that high average damage is because uh, the Ghost Knight has three attacks uh, for oh. multi-attack. Either the battle lance or the lance attacks. If the ghost knights is mounted, it can make two battle axe or lance attacks, and its mount can make one melee uh, weapon attack. So yeah, it's a brutal creature. You don't need too many uh, to give your uh, uh, players a hard time. I, I guess I'm I'm kind of on the uh, one of those GMs that don't like to make combat encounters uh, easy, a walk in the park. You know, I want to no, make no, I want I want to make ooh. sure that PCs are feeling it. For sure. I, I feel like I'd want to drop the battle axe in favor of a flail. Oh, a flail would just yeah. be so scary with one of these guys. Like you just see this this ghost knight mounted on his dead horse, you know, like a three ball flail. Uh or morning star. Like a morning or is it morning star is the one on the chain? No, it's a flail on the yeah. chain. Yeah. Yeah. Like a three ball flail just comes out and just whoo. That'd be brutal. Yeah, a flail is is, is an awesome option. You know, you can throw in a, a battle axe. Um, you can throw in a whip made out of the spines of its uh, of its fallen victims. This is a scary creature. This creature combined yeah, that, with the crimson mist, man. Yeah, that's just yep. not not a fair fight for sure. But uh, that's those, not the, no. Those would pair well together. Like I like the idea of like getting four of these guys, each with a different weapon, like the four horsemen. They can oh, do a yeah. four horsemen theme for these guys. Yeah. You know, have one with a flail, one with a battle axe, one with a great sword, you know, uh, one with a morning star, like something like that, and make them the four horsemen. Yeah. I also envision these guys pursuing the PCs all across uh, yeah. Krakowar. They know they're there. They know where they're coming or headed to, you know, through their spies. Yep. Uh, these guys are uh, on their tail for sure. Yeah. Very, very ring rate. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's another trope. That's awesome. You know. Yeah. It, yeah. Is, it really is. Yeah. So I'm, I'm I'm digging it, man. It's a good it was a good choice for this episode. Yeah. So you know, like you hear us describe, Empire of the Ghouls is a sandbox. Um, it does require a little bit of prep uh, if if you want to really uh, inject the lore uh, into that. But man, there's not a ton of prep that you have to do to make uh, wonderful encounters. Again, rather than rolling on a random. Uh, table, you know, you can just have like three or four small encounters in your back pocket that you can uh, throw out your throw out your PCs uh, whenever you want. Well, that's our show. I hope you enjoyed it. In our next show, we're going to talk about Yarosburg, but it turns yeah. out Yarosburg is not the final destination. There's one other place that uh, we will uh, talk about uh, in our next episode. So, Joe, how can people reach you? Well, uh, you can find me on YouTube at GM Toolbox, as well as on TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. Uh, I'm also on Twitter at GM underscore Toolbox. And of course, you can find me on the Midgard Adventures Discord server at GM Toolbox. How about yeah. you, Clay? Midgard Adventures Discord server is the place I hang out. You can uh, uh, DM me at, at Clayton Thompson. The Midgard uh, Adventures Discord server is an awesome place. It's an independent fan-based cooperative group that is affiliated with Cobalt Press. There we talk about Midgard lore, share tips and tricks, answer questions, and we also offer some organized play games. Summer Summertime, it's been a little lean on uh, GM availability, but when the temperature starts to turn cold, uh, you'll, you'll probably find a, a lot more online games uh, being uh, posted. Now, this community is open to everyone. 
particularly those new to Midgard and role-playing games in general. You can also hang out with other fans of Midgard in our Mead Hall or all the channels available. Uh, even the Kobolds uh, tend to uh, uh, peruse those channels. And if you have a question about an adventure, there's a big chance that uh, one of the writers will uh, respond to your question. Yeah. Uh, we also have a dedicated channel for that Midgard show on the server, and that's where you can post some comments, talk about the content on the show. So check us out. We have an invitation to the Midgard Adventures Discord server available in our show notes. So if you like our show, please click on the like button and subscribe to our channel. Spread the word about that Midgard show. Do all those great things. Uh, we're also on uh, all major podcast platforms. So please subscribe, leave us a positive comment, give us a five-star review and just help us out and grow the channel and spread the word, guys. Uh, so that's it for today. And remember, as Wolfgang Barr says, strip it for parts and make it your own. Thank you for joining us. Take care, everyone. Thanks, everyone.